0: Welcome. I am Suzanne Freeman. I am the president of the Friends of the Library, and I am uh, so excited to be here. Emily called and asked if I would introduce this library program. This Brown Bag Green Book series is one of the programs the library sponsors, and in case you don't know it, we have one of the best libraries in the country. And And I'd also like to say that they're operating on a very slim budget, so they are to be commended for all that they're doing for us, for the small uh, amount that they're doing it for. And we, as friends, uh, have literature. We would love for you to join us in partnering with the library to be advocates for them in all of these areas. We are also able to make a bigger impression as an advocate if we have more members, so... We're hoping that you will uh, enjoy this program, which is an offset of the library. And uh, I'm supposed to uh, also mention that it's it's co-sponsored by the city of Knoxville, not just the library. (laughs) I believe Paul Burney is going to introduce our speaker. And this is a wonderful program, so I hope you all will enjoy.
1: Thank you. My name is Paul Burney. I don't know how many of y'all had the chance to, to read this book, but it, it was a little bit daunting. Um, when I got into work today, I was talking to a coworker and I and I looked over at him, and I said, you know, sometimes I, I really don't want to know what's going on in the world. You know, I just get ticked off, and I feel helpless, and then I've, I feel like I really can't do anything about it anyway. And, and I guess that's, that's kind of what's so inspiring about these two women and, and about the people that were featured in this book. You know, they, they were all individuals, and, and they saw the world, or at least their part of the world, that, uh, that there needed to be something done. One of the stories from this book that really touched me most is there was a, a woman named Judy Bonds who told a delegation to the United Nations. She said, Most Americans think that their electricity comes from the electricity ferry. That's not what they think. You ask them where it comes from. Well, from the light switch. Excuse me, but I know where it comes from because my blood, sweat, and tears pay for it. Every time you flip on that light switch, you're blowing up my mountains, and you're poisoning my babies. When you come to Appalachia, you're no longer in the United States of America. No, sir. You're in the United States of Appalachia, and King Cole rules with an iron Fist. I'm, I'm here to introduce Pat Hudson, who is LEAF's Executive Director, and who is also in charge of outreach to churches. And I'm also here to, to introduce Dawn Kopec. Um She is LEAF's Legislative Director. Uh, Dawn helped draft the proposed state legislation, and she serves as LEAF's point person on legislative matters. Dawn and Pat are both volunteers, and they... Um, they both they spend time uh, volunteering, doing stuff for leaf and as lobbyists, and frequently travel to Nashville. In their other lives, um, Pat is a writer and uh, Don is an attorney. And as if that weren't enough, they, they also have two children each. The Lindquist Environmental Appalachian Fellowship was established by members of the Church of the Savior. It is a memorial to Kathy Lindquist and her deep religious faith and her dedication to environmental stewardship. Concerns for God's creation is not a matter of being liberal or conservative. It's not a Republican nor a Democratic issue. Leaf believes that people of faith can look beyond such distinctions and do the Lord's work together. Leaf's mission is to bring the issue of mountaintop removal to the attention of East Tennesseans and encourage them toward action welcome both Don Kopik and Pat Hudson. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I wanted to start with a quote from from Something's Rising. Where there was once a mountain, now there's a deep, dead hole. Even far past the mine, coal dust and dirt cover the huge kudzu leaves that crowd close to the road. The kudzu has crept onto the houses and trailers, too, as if this place is being devoured by two non-natives, a plant from Japan and corporations from a place that locals call off, a land whose inhabitants don't have to see the damage they're doing. That's from the section by Larry Bush, who's an activist in Virginia. And for those of you who haven't read the book, Something's Rising is really oral history, and no less than Studs Terkel called it oral history at its best. There are a number of of themes in Something's Rising uh, about these 12 different activists and the groups that they represent. The states that are represented are Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, and, and Tennessee. And The whole concept of the book is that the people who are being most affected by this particular industry have the least power to affect their future as things stand. And there's some real basic reasons for that. If you read the book, you can see several themes running through it. And one is, um, it's not, not stated real explicitly, but over and over, the implication is that Appalachia has become a sacrifice zone for other parts of the country for cheap electricity. And Denise Jardina, who's one of the activists mentioned, uh, very explicitly calls Appalachia a third world country. And when you think about what's happening here, I think that's really true. Um, she also maintains that the stereotypes of Appalachia began with these extraction industries in the um, late 18. 18- Hundreds. The, the reason there is, and this is a quote from her, e- it's easier to inflict injustice on someone who isn't your equal. So by making the people of Appalachia and the region seem less than, expendable, it, it empowers industry to do what it wants to. Another theme is that the immense wealth of both timber and coal that are in this region are not controlled by people in the region. And haven't been for a very long time. And as a result, because they are largely owned by out-of-state corporate interests, the wealth is transferred outside of the region. And that also makes it very difficult for the people of the region to overcome some of the basic problems that all of us know the region faces. Um, Despite extensive land and mineral holdings, these uh, interests, these industries pay a pittance in taxes, leaving the region deprived of basic municipal services and with underfunded schools, and the cycle continues. But it's not that the people of Appalachia are dumber or are hillbillies or are any of those stereotypes that help industry explain away what's happening here. Um, Silas and Jason would be the first to say that's, that's something they very clearly want to get out, that word out in the community. Um, The Appalachian Regional Commission did a study of of 80 counties in the six states that are considered Appalachian, and of the 13 million acres surveyed, 75% of the surface acres were absentee-owned, 75%. The link between um, land control and longstanding problems and insufficient tax revenues are totally evident when you look at figures like that. This region, in essence, is paying the price for other regions' prosperity. And what the people in Something's Rising are saying is that needs to stop. And and the way that that's going to stop is awareness. And that's what LEAF has been attempting to do on a lot of levels. Um, before I introduce Dawn, I wanted to read very quickly a part of an editorial that was in the Knoxville News Sentinel just a little over a week ago. The battle for the future of Appalachia is not merely between environmentalists on the one hand and coal mining industry on the other. It is a struggle that engulfs all in this region. We join that battle knowingly or unknowingly when we turn on a light switch, turn up the heat or air conditioning, plug in our computers, or use a myriad of other appliances. Much of our electricity comes from coal-fired plants. We also participate in this fight when we learn to conserve, to temper our use of electricity, understanding our need to breathe clean air and see a beautiful landscape. That's been the message, really, in a nutshell, that LEAF has been taking to churches all around the region now for almost four years. And um, it starts with conservation. It starts with each of us. It starts with each of us changing our own habits, and that's a message of discipline and just awareness that we try to bring to the churches in church lingo, it's called creation care, and, and we provide free books and DVDs to help that happen. That has always been our basic, our basic core mission. In addition to that, we have now overlaid that with a legislative mission, and that is uh, Dawn Coppick, our legislative director's area, so I'm going to turn the program over to her to talk about that.
3: Thank you. We decided today that we could talk with you with three points, kind of to keep things organized. Just to orient y'all to mountaintop mining uh, for people who don't know anything about it. And then I think the book is just about a lot, the issue that Paul raises. What makes people feel like they can enge- engage on something so big and unwieldy and scary as mountaintop removal, coal mining, or other social problems? And and. Not only this big social problem, we have a lot of other social problems. So what keeps thinking uh, folks motivated when they're trying to engage? So we're going to talk some about that. And then how you personally can engage. We like to think this is a Kentucky problem or a West Virginia problem. This is a Tennessee problem uh tdx written water quality violations they'll all say we're already over regulated we follow all these rules and that was at one of the senate committee meetings in 2008 i just dropped on all the senate committee members desks the just one year of federal violations on for for uh, mining in Tennessee, and it was a half an inch thick of one line item, line item, eight to ten violations a page, many of them very serious, including settlement pond violations like the one that caused that spill in Martin County, Kentucky. So, uh, And some of the biggest settlement ponds that are near people are in Anderson County, Tennessee. Water is fast becoming more valuable than coal. And uh, there are plenty of people in Appalachia now that can't drink their tap water. There are uh, women who complain that their house smells like sulfur, so people think they're a bad housekeeper just from turning on the tap. People who can afford to buy the water to drink or maybe barely afford but are bathing their babies in water that's got arsenic in it and obviously can't afford to buy bath water. That's happening all over Appalachia now. That's a serious concern. You saw the flooding. Flooding is displacing communities. One of the ways LEAF engages on the uh, church issue is we've worked uh, with some with Christians for the Mountains and given away their video, which is wonderful. It's called Mountain Mourning, and they're a very small group of largely evangelical and uh, Pentecostal Christians, and their churches are in West Virginia all along these uh, bodies of water, streams and rivers, because they baptize. And their churches are getting flooded out, and their communities are getting flooded out. And finally, they they said, enough is enough. And they're just a very effective organization in West Virginia. The other thing, you know, we're, as Christians, we're not going to say that the earth is more important than the people on it. And people have needs, and we're clearly directed to love our neighbors. So we're often asked, well, what about the mining jobs? And it's really interesting to see... Uh, From the 1950s, which is the beginning of this chart, to 2002, and the trend continues, the red line is the employment of of miners in America. So you can see from 1950, um, the number of miners has decreased significantly. The amount of coal mined is the blue line. It's remained pretty stable. The reason for the decrease, each one of those big drops in the number of miners employed corresponds directly with increased mechanization in the mining industry. And the last big drop beginning at 1980 is mountaintop removal coal mining. So when they say, if we stop mountaintop removal coal mining, and we have to mine in ways that are more strategic and careful, Uh, it will cost jobs, it will cost the dynamite man his job, but the other miners, they will need more people as a whole, and it will employ more people. The reason mountaintop removal coal mining is cheap is because the labor costs are low. That's the primary reason, and so to take an industry that's based on minimizing their labor costs and say we should continue to exist because we produce jobs is really disingenuous. Excuse me. And in Tennessee, there are 300, and one year it was 27, the next year I think 47 mining jobs in Tennessee, uh, surface coal mining jobs in Tennessee. 300, uh, less than 350. The other argument we get a lot is well, what about coal use? If you ban mountaintop removal coal mining in Tennessee, we'll flip on the lights and nothing will happen. Well, as Paul said, nationally, less than 5% of our coal is mountaintop mined. In Tennessee, our total coal production is 0.2% of the nation's coal. 0.2, not 2%. We fall behind the huge coal states of Arizona, Maryland, Louisiana, and Mississippi. (laughs) All right. Now, we also have bigger tourism industries than most of those states. And in East Tennessee, our tourism industry is dependent on mountains. So how smart is it to blow up mountains for less than 350 mining jobs, the employers are almost exclusively out-of-state owned, uh, and and undermine tourism? It just doesn't make good sense. It's not good business sense. It's not good stewardship. Every county in the coal-producing region employs more people in tourism. Tennessee tourism is the second largest industry after agriculture, Last year, they reported that they employ 177,000 people versus 350 people. You know, you just kind of have to think about that. And these uh, coal-producing regions are some of the prettiest mountains in our state, and they are the least exploited. And they're trying to bring in retirement communities and condos and hotels and beds and breakfasts and outdoor outfitters to run these rivers. And, and mountaintop removal is just inconsistent with that vision. So what we decided was to try to think of a way that we could balance the need for coal, because clearly we're not anti-coal. It's a transitional fuel that we're going to need until we can come up with more sustainable fuels. Uh, how long we need it is the fight between the conservationists and the coal industry. The coal industry would like us to use it for another 50 years. If we really pushed it, we could probably quit using it in 15 years. You know, or what, That's what we're arguing over. Um, but the need for mountains and clean water. So we came up with a solution, and I sat down with uh, the National Parks Conservation Association, and we're very collaborative with a lot of different organizations. Uh, the only, we would have just joined another organization, except we wanted to bring the faith story to the table. Uh, because there are a lot of very effective groups already working on this, but anyway, Don Barger at National Parks Conservation Association uh, is just a really smart guy, and I'm an adoption lawyer. You know, I'm not a coal industry specialist, or well, I know a lot more about it than I used to, but but uh, but no, I'm not an environmental lawyer, and so uh, he's very smart. And his um, water and air analyst, Bart Melton also, and the three of us wrote. Some legislation, which is pending in the Tennessee legislature, originally introduced in 2008, uh, got through the Senate committee in 2008 and then had to be reintroduced because Tennessee runs in a two-year legislative cycle this past year uh, and is is stalled in both the Senate and House environment committees right now. Uh, But the approach we took is if land is over 2,000 feet, it should not be altered or disturbed with the ridgeline should not be altered or disturbed with surface coal mining. You can underground mine it. You can strip mine it. We're not trying to tell you you can't get your minerals out of the ground. We're saying if I'm looking at the horizon line from a distance, your mining should not affect what I see. Uh, My horizon line should remain unchanged. As one of the senators said the first time I made this presentation at the Senate committee, well, it sounds pretty anemic to me. And I just have to say, you pass it, <laughs> which which is what I said, um, actually. And God bless him, he sponsored it the next year. Um, so here we are. Here's here's some of the technical language: surface coal mining operations that alter, or disturb a ridgeline above 2,000 feet elevation above sea level will not be prohibited. We had to add that it doesn't prohibit other kinds of coal mining at other elevations or even at that elevation. Because, of course, they said that we wanted to obliterate coal mining totally and forever. And this is where the coal is in Tennessee. A lot of people don't know. And for those of you on an audio cast, it's on the LEAF website, tnleaf.org. There's a map of all the counties in Tennessee that have coal, and they're in gray. And then on this map in orange is the land over 2,000 feet. And so, when you're in the valley on either side of that ridgeline, that's your horizon line. That orange, uh, that orange extension of mountains, and that's all we're telling them to leave alone. And we're not telling them not to mine. So we think, as a policy matter, and what legislative bodies are supposed to do is foster good policy, that this type, the, these areas should be safeguarded for spiritual reasons, for business reasons, for employment reasons, because they're the, they're the family jewels here in Tennessee, and that we don't need to throw them away. So that's, um, that's what we did. And the, we've promised to address what makes people do things that are this crazy in their spare time. <laughs> and so I'm going to turn over to Pat and let her talk a minute about what leads her to this issue and activists in general, and then I'll talk briefly about that for myself.
2: Dawn's right. It is a crazy thing to do when you have another full life. Uh, Neither of us really needed more projects, but um, really Kathy Lindquist is what got both of us into it. And um, she battled cancer her entire adult life, passed away at the age of 45, and was a woman who combined both spiritual uh, deep, very deep religious faith and very passionate environmental uh, ethic and so LEAF was founded in her memory and is supported primarily by our church in her memory and the reason it's taken off the way it has is because of the model that she set for us for me personally when Kathy brought this issue to the church there were really two things I think two reasons that it, it spoke to me the first is heritage Um, I'm an eighth-generation East Tennessean. Uh, My family was here before Tennessee became a state. And to see, as as I described in the beginning, out-of-state corporations, um, absentee landowners, really forcing our state to to do things that even many of the miners admit they would prefer not to do if there were alternatives for them, you know, employment-wise. I liken it to somebody being asked to tear down their own house while they're living in it and then expect their family to live in the rubble. It's not something anyone would choose um, if they had alternatives. And that leads me into the second reason why I think this issue is a religious issue, and that's faith. And what we're called to... And Don and I are both Christian, and so we have to operate out of that mode. But most religious faiths would say something very similar, which is you should treat your neighbor as yourself. To ask someone to live in the midst of the devastation you've seen simply so I can power my iPod or my computer or you know any of the appliances we kind of take for granted, to me is not a Christian attitude. It's not what we're called to be or to do. And and so, by taking this issue and putting the faith issue over it, we're trying to point out that, that Christianity for many, many millennia, really, had a, an environmental stewardship ethic to it. And we've really only lost that in that faith in the last 150 years or so. Um, we're going to have some quotes up here at some point that are from Martin Luther or from Calvin. I mean... When you see a quote, I'll read it real quick for those on the podcast. God writes the gospel, not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars. You don't have to look far in Christian doctrine and in Scripture to see that stewardship is something that's mandated by the faith. And so, in many respects, what LEAF is trying to do is to remind people of, of their Christian roots, remind people of something that we knew until fairly recently. When you know that there are problems in your region, it's up to us, I think, as people of faith to address it. Many people don't know how to do that or haven't known how to do that, haven't known how to plug in. What people of faith have to to get beyond is thinking that if you care about the earth, that means you have signed on to a whole big so-called liberal agenda. We've had to tweeze this issue out and say to folks, we can disagree on many, many, many other issues. This is something we can agree on. This is something that whether you're a liberal or a conservative, whether you're a Presbyterian or you're Catholic or you're, you know, whatever, we can agree on this. And almost everyone, you know, unless they are really, really tied to the industry, understand that. Um, the picture here is a, an attempt at reclamation. Um, the irony of this is this this is uh, a tree planting sponsored by the coal industry. Um, the, uh, vol- volunteers are doing it. It, it, it. I guess it was a feel-good project for some folks. However, they're planting American chestnut trees uh, that are not blight resistant and, and that they admitted they did not expect to, to live. Um, It it is a research project, but (laughs) the truth of the matter is some of these sites, and I've walked on some of these sites in other states that have been reclaimed for 20 years. It's still like walking on a moonscape. Uh, There's no topsoil. Trees struggle to get to 18 inches. You know, you can't reclaim, and from our our environmental ethic, which is faith-based, Human beings can't make mountains like God made them. It's, it's ludicrous to look at some of the images of, of reclaimed sites and say it's anywhere close to what was there before. Um, one last thing. If you doubt that environmentalism or, or, or stewardship is a faith issue or should be a faith issue, I invite you to go to a website called thegreenletterbible.com. There is now a Bible that lists Every single environmental scripture in green, when you flip through the Bible, it's amazing. It's just like this green green mass. Um, Christians across the country are waking up to this. In two weeks, I'm going to be at a faith-based symposium in Kentucky, and it will have folks from all the different denominations. It's being headed by the dean of the Yale Divinity School, um, creation care is the hot, hot topic, and so LEAF is simply trying to spread that message to Tennessee churches.
3: And on our website, there's also denominational statements from a number—all almost the mainstream denominations—in uh, Christian, the Christian faith, have statements, creation care statements, and most of them have anti-mountaintop removal coal mining statements. So whether you're a Methodist, Catholic, Presbyterian, your church has already taken a position on this issue. And we're lobbying with clergy. We've had um, a, a lot of, of major denominational leaders statewide on, on Capitol Hill talking to legislators. The Catholics, I just thought this was the coolest thing. They do two lobby days, one with all their... Um, their priests and nuns and leadership, and one with the school children. And the three issues they were lobbying last year were abortion, capital punishment, and mountaintop removal, coal mining. You know, it is just huge arrogance and hubris to think that we can create mountains as well as God can, that a mining engineer can. I'm sorry, it just makes me angry. Uh, and that's part of what... Um, motivates me is anger. There's a fair amount of, I, I, my family like Pat's was here before it was a state. We, we both consider ourselves to be decidedly Appalachian and we're mad and we're not taking it anymore. I mean, that's part of what it is. (laughs) Well, thank you. And we're also dealing with some pretty intriguing challenges. I think both of us love a challenge and uh, and we, we we're re- we were ready for one. And so what we're doing now is we're trying to figure out how do we invite our brothers and sisters in the Christian community to this political process? And I'll tell you, legislative plaza ain't no Sunday school. Now, how do we operate effectively in that environment while remaining true to our Christian values? Lobbying, you know, the idea, I, I think sometimes... People said, now, wait a minute, Don. you're a lawyer and a registered lobbyist. And I said, well, you know, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and, and all kinds of riffraff. So, um, so I'm following in the Zacchaeus tradition, I guess. But, um, but it is a challenge to be in the world and not of it. And that has caused a lot of spiritual growth. And God won't leave you alone. When he tells you, you know, when this came up and Pat and I started talking, I thought, you know, all those sort of uh, incongruent skill sets and relationships in my life that I have thought, you know, all these experiences in history that really didn't blend that well are all of a sudden all exactly what I need to do this job. Now, how'd that happen? And then when I started, and I, the same was true for Pat, and Pat and I are, have different skill sets and some that are very common, different motivations and some that are very common. And I thought, you know, the things I'm worried about not having, she has. I mean, I don't think we were just called to this issue. We were called to work together on this issue. And as we started down the path, we would hit spots where we would say, and I'm in charge of the legislative strategy, which is kind of scary. And, um, and we, I would say, okay, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and then this will happen, and then that will be our response. And they'll say, and then what are you going to do after that? There's this huge abyss, Dawn. And I said, I don't know. God is big. And every time we had a huge abyss, we leapt it somehow, and aid came from somewhere crazy. I mean, not what we planned. And we got a lot of assistance. So what I have found is when you do answer a call, it's this faith journey. It's you, you get to grow. Uh, there are Christian experiences, I could ways I have become more dependent on God that would not have happened if I was not on this journey. And I know Pat feels the same way. I mean, we have prayed on the steps of the Rhineman. We have cried in the bathroom at Legislative Plaza, and it was reported in two newspapers. <laughs> I was like, damn it, can't a girl just cry all by herself? But anyway, I mean, it is it is not for the faint of heart, but we have become bigger people and better Christians as a result of it. And so what I think about the question of what are we going to do with this crazy world that's so bad, I think we're all called to something, all of us. And what I think is I'm called to child welfare issues and mountaintop removal, and I'm called to do what's in front of me, and I've got skill sets to do that. And if I do that and you all do what you're called to do, the kingdom will come. And the kingdom is the lion laying down with the lamb. It is everybody having clean water and and food to eat and a meaningful work. And so that, to me, is what motivates an activist is to have, you know, god, God's god got her back, but just stepping forward, knowing that all I can do is take care of the piece that's in front of me. So what pieces are in front of you? I don't know, but I'm going to tell you how to get involved. You can go to tnleaf.org and subscribe. When we're active in the legislature, I do a, a kind of a blog every Thursday that tells you what's going on and when the votes are and who to call. If you subscribe, we will, we will send those to you whenever they come out. And our next action alert, I think, is going to be an announcement of how the gubernatorial candidates feel about our bill, and that will be worth reading. So there's a reason to subscribe. Then we need to encourage positive behavior. We have gotten a bunch of good press. Every major newspaper in the state this summer except the Commercial Appeal has editorialized against mountaintop removal mining. Okay? Uh, Charlie Daniel at Tennessean has written a pile of cartoons. Some of them are back on the back table. He is just a deer and has let us use those. Uh the Metropulse did a cover article on us that was, or on, well, on us, really. Well, we were featured on Mountaintop Removal, but we, they have a big picture of us at church. And apparently it blows people's mind that church ladies do these things. But um, anyway, there's also been huge progress on the federal level. What we've got to do is affirm positive progress. So when the Sentinel is running good articles, write a letter to the editor and thank them. Some journalists in this area are doing a great job with this issue. Call them up and tell them you appreciate it because that's a lonely job. They don't get much feedback. The EPA, that Lisa Jackson, I'm going to hug her neck. She just keeps pulling mining permits. And, uh, and so, so you go, girl. Uh, Senator Lamar uh, Alexander has introduced the Appalachian Restoration Act Act. That would ban valley fields. We don't use a lot of valley fields in Tennessee, but we use some. The coal industry would be shut down pretty much in Kentucky and West Virginia on mountaintop-type mining if that bill passes, or so they say, and so I hope. But um, So Senator Alexander's bill is sitting in committee, so we need to affirm, thank you, Senator, for proposing that. Who are your votes? How are you going to get it out of committee? How can I help you do that? We know, we need to keep these guys engaged. Now, this is what I need the most help with. The lieutenant governor, the speaker of the House, these are the men that control what gets through that legislature. I can tell you right now, if Ron Ramsey decided this was his, in his top five priority package to get through this next session, it would pass. It would pass if Pat and I never drove to Nashville. Now, he's from Upper East Tennessee, His web address is online. You just pull him up on the legislative website, which is a great accessible website, and tell him what you think. He's running for governor. He may be coming to a pancake dinner near you. (laughs) So, I mean, when you see these candidates for governor, when you see these elected representatives out, talk to them about it. They don't think you know about it. They don't think you care. I've got a list on the House side of the House committee members I've got a list on the Senate side of the Senate committee members, and we have, as an honor today, one of the House committee members here today, Mike Cornell. Mike, will you stand up? (laughs) I keep keep my tennis shoes in Mike's office. (laughs) When they were, um, when they were, Slocum was spearheading the original anti-strip mining legislation. Mike was right there with them every step of the way. He is an environmentalist going way back. So we don't. Really, you can tell Mike, thank you, but you don't have to tell him how to vote. He knows how to vote. Um, but a lot of these other people do need to know how to vote, and a disproportionate number of these committee members are from East Tennessee. We should be able to prevail on this issue, but so far we. Haven't quit laughing, Betty. <laughs> What's the committee called? That well, in the Senate, it's called the Environment Committee, and in the House, it's called the Environment and Conservation Committee. I think that's right. <laughs> Betty, I'm being recorded.
0: <laughs>
3: this is going to be a podcast.
0: <laughs>
2: All
3: right, the other thing you can do is tell other people. And we find email. Lots of people join our Action Alerts because people send an Action Alert to them and ask them to join. So if you want to send that to your whole email list, yes. Um, and, and just talk to your friends. There are events all the time. There are a lot of great environmental groups. Sock em has a flyer in the back. They were the original pioneers of coal mining legislation in Tennessee, or anti-coal mining legislation, and they're airing a video on November 2nd on the subject. If you see events in your community, invite friends so that we educate more people and go and support these groups i'll tell you what else join some of these groups leaf is not a membership group you can't join leaf we'll talk later about what you could do with that membership dues you would pay to leaf but um but you can join world wildlife the nature conservancy sierra uh the parks and greenways sockham uh the the clean water network's not membership either right you are a membership. Okay, we've got Clean Water Networks here. All right. <laughs> yay! Yeah, and they work hard. They work hard. So there are a lot of excellent groups. I know I've left some out. The uh, uh, NRDC, Nat, yeah, National Parks Conservation. Different groups are good at different things. Some of them have great grassroots. Some of them have great lawyers. Some of them have great PR. Some of them are good at, at fundraising. And, and God bless them. They're all sweet to us. They All those groups have been uh, good partners to us, but our partners are not primarily in the environmental community. We are working with the hunting and fishing guys. Our biggest partner that's just been outspoken and did a guest editorial in the Tennessean is the hospitality industry. Uh, The Tennessee Conservatives Union is on this. We've got A much more diverse group than what you would think. Because the Conservatives Union said Teddy Roosevelt stopped clear cutting. If something is absolutely devastating, that's not conservation. And you know, mountains don't grow back. So you can donate money, we'll take money, all those other groups will take money. Our website explains how to give us money, but our educational funds are tax deductible, what we use to buy books for churches. What we use for patentized hotel bills in Nashville is not. But let me tell you what you can get for a mere $150. We can spend a night in Nashville. We we pay for our own food. Capitol Hill hotels are expensive and our own gas. But we can spend the night in Nashville for $150 and drive the coal industry crazy for two full business days. We don't bill for our time, but we can't we paid our hotel bills the first year largely by ourselves. Last year, we were just tapped out and couldn't do it anymore. So I mean, you think, well, where's that money going to go? We're going to give it to the Hilton company, and we're going to stay down in Nashville and make sure that, that they don't get by with very much for two full business days. So if you want to give us money, we'll take it. Uh, you can volunteer you can volunteer with us or you know not everybody has a faith-based approach to this and we understand all those other groups that i named and probably others as well are doing good work on this issue or maybe you're not called to this you know maybe you're called to health care or child welfare or something else god needs or the world needs your passion people that are set on fire. What you feel passionate about, please engage in that. And for those of you who are inclined to pray, I'm telling you, we've leaped many an abyss with just what we know is a whole lot of people praying real hard. So please do that. We really think it changes hearts, and that's what we need. in Nashville is some changes of heart. So I think that's everything. I hope you all know what the problem is, what activates us, and where to engage yourselves. And I want to say one more thing. When we were talking about staying informed, you all get a gold star today because you came out at lunchtime and wanted to learn this stuff. So that's, that's huge. You're already engaged in your community. So I don't want you leaving feeling guilty that you're not doing more. If this is all you can do, you've done something big just by being here today. So thank you very much.
2: Materials. So, um, please see Pat at the back and get your church on the list. We'll mail them directly to you to, to use at your church. It really only takes five or six pretty impassioned people in a church to bring an issue to, to the attention of a large number of folks. And um, if you're Methodist in particular, uh, your bishops have already, the bishop for the Holston Conference, the bishop for Middle and West Tennessee, have totally come out in favor of not only creation care in general but this legislation in particular so uh, a lot of your religious leaders already have your back you don't have to feel like you're going out on a limb but we do need to know who needs the materials I've got 900, 900 copies of this PBS DVD renewal and uh, it's a great it's a great introduction to creation care and, and the first 10 minutes is totally on mountain Park Removal. it's beautiful Filmed. So, let me know who needs them.
1: Um, I want to thank y'all for being here, first, but um, and and I appreciate you, you speaking about environmentalism. Uh, me, from a faith-based perspective. Um, what I've heard a lot is basically people saying that if you're if you're against mountaintop removal, then then you're against capitalism. Do, do you all ever address that? That the connection that You can be both an environmentalist and and believe in the free market at the same time.
3: One of the cool things to do is go back and read Adam Smith. You know, capitalism was never supposed to be total unbridled greed. The community interest was supposed to be part of it. It was supposed to be moderated by democracy and by larger policy issues. So are we for unbridled greed mining by any method that's geologically and engineering possible? No. Are we for people against people making money? Absolutely not. We understand money is stored human energy and is neither negative nor positive. It's how we use it that makes it good or bad. And so, if people want to make money in ways that uh, in ways that are legal and responsible and support the community,
0: we think that's great. More power to you.
2: The thing we keep hearing is about property rights. That's always the always. But, but this particular form of extraction is so destructive, there's just no way to keep it contained to one person's property. It just doesn't happen. Maybe in theory it would be possible, but in, in practice it just doesn't happen that way. So, yes. Uh, following up, there's an author and important who's done a lot of writing uh, you know, and know, through the world. So the original assumptions of capitalism was a, a large number of players, none of which had decision-making power over the market. And what we're talking about now is not traditional capitalism. It's, it's morphed into something else.
3: Right. Well, and one thing that's very scriptural, you know, I love I, to go back and read the, the Old Testament prophets. They were angry because the government had become corrupt. The people had become greedy. They had started exploiting the poor. And they had become, they'd lost a sense of reverence for one another and for their community. Those are exactly the issues we're still talking about
2: right now. This is a verse. I'll just read it really quickly. Uh, Old Testament verse uh, from Job. Uh, let's see. No, let's let's read this one. Jeremiah. It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. How contemporary is that? I mean, that we could be talking Sir? about right now. A uh, couple of points and one question. Uh, Former Senator Howard Baker has a federal building in Knoxville named after him. Uh, University of Tennessee has a brand-new state-sponsored building named after him. He lives in the mining area of East Tennessee. To (coughs) your knowledge, has Senator Senator Baker ever made a public statement about this issue?
3: I don't have a public statement from Senator Baker. I went to a bar association meeting back in May, I guess, where he spoke. He's very eloquent, and there's something about being retired, I think, that gives people a little bit more freedom to speak. But one of the other people on the panel mentioned Clint Cull, and he just cackled kind of and said he didn't think there was any such thing. So it would be wrong to say that he's not paying attention and that he doesn't understand the issue. Has he had a leadership role on stopping mountaintop removal? No. Yes. Just to
2: address uh, Howard Baker, his family was very involved in coal mining. Uh, the Brimstone Coal Company did a lot of mining on the plateau, and that's Howard Baker's family's
3: coal company, so that may be why he hasn't
2: come right out against it.
3: Right, and chuckle might be better than <laughs> <laughs> <Since> you <laughs> it's I'm- 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 I'm-
2: Well,
0: he yes. is- Howard Baker was also one of the co-sponsors of the Clean Air Act of 72, so I can't imagine that he would be oppo- opposed to
3: regulations on this. I mean, you know, the EPA was founded under um, Nixon's administration, so. Well, as I said, we just work on the state level, and as far as the state legislation is concerned, we haven't felt his influence one way or another. Yes, Renee? Uh,
2: what do you think the chances are for passage of the
3: bill in, this, in the second half of It'll depend on the leadership in the Senate. I think it's possible. And
2: a lot of public public pressure. Yes, a lot of public pressure. A lot of public pressure. We are
3: are not going to tell you that we think it's going to pass this year. We're going to say it, it is introduced. We hope it moves forward. God is big. It will be him and not us if it passes. Where's the governor? The governor, if we can get it to the Senate, is going to be on it. Have we heard that before? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think the governor does not like mountaintop money. I think he has said that before. He said that publicly before. And he has never done anything to thwart our efforts.
1: The oh, governor does not like
3: mountaintop money, and he would be pleased if we well, can get it to the Senate. Is it going to help?
0: What's the number
3: I can flip back
0: to that that um, slide for you. Go ahead and
1: that next to you. Here. Can can I make one point on your jobs that you're talking about,
2: just a little point of interest that TVA employees more people per day to clean up the coal ash disaster spill than are employed mining coal in Tennessee. And did you
3: know last year was the first year in American history when more people were employed by the wind industry than the coal industry? Uh, And the bill numbers are H. Bill 899 and Senate Bill 1406. And there are also, we have two sets of, of bills. It's a long story, but those are the ones that they'll recognize first. Any other questions? Sign up for the email list, please, and thank y'all for being here.
2: Hello, I'm Emily Ellis, reference librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, Visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.